So it's kind of starting to feel like the holidays are already upon us. Am I right? The stores are changing. There's snow on the ground. It was so cold last week. And I don't know about you, but I'm already starting to feel like my Christmas tree should be up, even though that's way too early. But it's starting to feel like the holidays. And uh, I'm starting to get into the holiday spirit already. And uh, I'm thinking about some of my favorite Christmas movie, movies. And probably my favorite Christmas story of all time has to be A Christmas Carol. It's my favorite, my favorite Christmas story of all time. Uh, my favorite movie probably is the Muppets version. That is the best version, in my humble opinion. Uh, but they're all good. They're all good. I love the story. And if you don't know, most of you probably know the story. But if you don't, it's about an elderly uh, miser, a greedy, a greedy man who ha- does not want to give anything to anybody. Uh, as Dickens calls him, he is a, a, a covetous old sinner. And he doesn't want to help anybody at all. And one of his former business partners, Marley, uh, comes to him as a ghost who is in chains. And he warns him, if, if you don't listen to the warnings you're about to receive, you're going to end up like me. So then Scrooge gets three warnings that we know as the, the ghost of Christmas past, ghost of Christmas present, and the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And I'll spare you all the details, but when the ghost of Christmas yet to come shows Scrooge his future, it's very bleak. You see, basically a funeral that's unattended, except for people who are celebrating that they might get some of his stuff and a grave that no one visits. And Scrooge, at the end, after seeing all the errors of his ways, he realizes, no, I need to live differently. And he begins to sob and begins to change. And then it's almost as, as if he wakes up, and he's a completely different person. And that's my favorite part of the movie. Is you see Scrooge, this, he is totally transformed from this, from this old covetous miser to this generous and joyful, jolly person who loves to give. It's an incredible story of redemption. And as we close out this sermon series on unlocking the parables, Jesus tells a story that I believe is very similar to a Christmas carol. It's called The Rich Man and Lazarus. And the goal of this story is the same as the goal of a Christmas carol. It is to warn you about the future and to dramatically awaken generosity in you. That's the goal. And A Christmas Carol has been made into countless versions, uh, movies, TV shows, plays, etc., Looking forward to seeing Stan in a few weeks. That's going to be great. Uh, but in the same way, in Jesus' world, there were many stories about the rich and the poor. And they would, often, they would, they would talk about a, a rich person and a poor person. They'd bring them to the realm of the dead, and there would be a reversal of the fortunes. This was a well-known story type in Jesus' day. And so Jesus is taking this well-known story type, and he's giving his own version, his own adaptation. But before we jump into this story, I want to remind us of the larger story that's been going on. You know, it's been so great to look at all these parables. We get all these little snippets of Jesus' teaching. But we don't want to forget the larger story that the Bible and that God is telling. That Jesus came to restore God's good world from the brokenness that it's in. And to do that, he launched his kingdom movement. To call people to repent, to place their trust in Jesus, the true Lord of the world. And to begin restoring the brokenness to restoring the world to the way that God intended it, the perfect peace and shalom that God wants for us. So that's what Jesus is doing. And right after his baptism and right after his temptation in the wilderness, we find Jesus in the synagogue in his hometown of of Nazareth. And he gets up to read a scroll from the prophet Isaiah that will define his kingdom movement. And he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of the sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You see, the kingdom that Jesus brought in his bringing has the goal of, of reversing all the misfortunes, all the brokenness, all of the ways that people are oppressed, all of the, way, the brokenness of a world. Jesus is restoring it to the wholeness and peace that he desires for them, to the way that God intended for it at the beginning. And so Jesus' kingdom was and is good news to the poor. So those who would believe in, believe in him and follow him, who would enter his kingdom, they must be good news to the poor as well. The word gospel means good news. It's the good news about Jesus and his kingdom. Christians, we are people of the good news, yes? We believe this gospel. We believe this good news. And my one point to you this morning is this. People of the good news must be good news to the poor. People of the good news must be good news to the poor. This was of primary importance to Jesus Christ. This is why you see him helping the poor, healing the sick, driving out demons, ministering to those in need everywhere he went. It's why you so often see Jesus attacking our selfish use of money, our, our limited understanding, our, our worldly use of money, so that we can give it away to others. It's why we heard him saying last week, you cannot serve both God and money. Because if you're going to enter my kingdom, my kingdom is good news to the poor. And so you're going to be called upon to live sacrificially generous lives for the sake of others. That's what my kingdom is about. It's about restoring other people to wholeness. And so I'm calling you to that as well. So you cannot be attached to money and possessions. And so Jesus, knowing this, he tells them another parable to drive this point home even further. The rich man and Lazarus. And just like a Christmas carol, it is designed to awaken generosity in you in light of eternity. It's designed to transform you like Scrooge himself was transformed. So let's dive into the story. If you want to follow along, it's in Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Okay, here is our Scrooge character. Except he's not frugal like Scrooge. He loves luxury. He loves the finer things of life. Uh, now, purple, he's wearing purple. This is the finest clothing that money could buy. Usually the, only the royalty would wear purple. So he has the best clothes. And then, if you notice, it says he's wearing fine linen. Now, this is the fancy Greek term for the Egyptian cotton underwear that, you could, that would be available to you. So there's a little bit of humor here. Not only does this guy have the best clothes money can buy, this guy has the best underwear money can buy. This guy, he likes the finer things of life. He likes the nice things. He likes the top-of-the-line quality. And says he lives in luxury every day. And other translations mean, say that this means he was, he was feasting lavishly. So not only did he have the best clothing, he had the best food catered to his house. Every day was a feast of the finest meats and wines and cheeses and breads and fruits, all kinds of things. He had this catered every day. And likely this means he did not honor the Sabbath. Notice it says every day. He didn't give his servants a break. He didn't give anybody else in his home a break. His self-indulgence was more important to him than following the laws of God. He wanted to indulge himself. And then we learn that he has a gate, which Lazarus sits by, and so that means this man lives in an absolute mansion. He lives, in a, he lives in the nicest house that money could buy at this time. And his property is surrounded by a, a wall that would have a gate so that you could come and go into his property. 
But the wall is designed to keep people, and especially the poor, out. It is designed to keep the have-nots off of his property. So he builds a wall so that no one would entrench upon his goods and his possessions the good things he has. He does not want to see or be bothered with the poor. He doesn't want to be inconvenienced. So he builds a wall and puts a gate up. He lives in a gated property. So to recap, this man has the best clothes. He has the best food money can buy and the best house money can buy. This guy, he is living the American dream. He has it all. He has the best of the best. He has, all, he has no cares. He has all the money he could ever want. But now we meet Lazarus. Verse 20. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Notice it says, Lazarus was laid. In other words, he did not put himself there. Now this probably means that Lazarus was paralyzed in some way because he could not put, bring himself to this rich man's gate. So someone in the community is bringing the, is Lazarus by the rich man's house in the hopes that the rich man and his friends might see Lazarus and be moved to some type of compassion and give him something. He is laid at the gate. And then it says he is a beggar. This man, probably because of his condition, is not able to work. He cannot provide for himself. He is completely dependent on the goodwill and the generosity and the mercy of his community. He's totally dependent. And while the rich man is covered with purple linen and the best underwear, this man, Lazarus, is covered with sores. He, has, he doesn't have adequate medical care. He doesn't have what he needs to take care of his body. He is covered with sores. It says he longed to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Now, although this rich man's house is huge, it's a mansion, uh, houses weren't spread out like they are in the suburbs of Chicago. Okay, they're all, we're all condensed here in, in Jerusalem. And so when he's sitting at his gate, likely Lazarus, he's only a few feet away from the feast that is taking place in the rich man's house. So likely he can hear the merriment. He can hear the drinking. He can hear the feasting. He can hear people ha laughing and having a great time. Meanwhile, he's sitting at the gate listening, hoping, longing, would someone have compassion? Would someone bring me a crumb? Would someone just give me a leftover from this feast that they're having? He's longing for just something that would fall from the rich man's table. And then it says, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, dogs in Israel, they're not like pets like we are today. Uh, they are wild scavengers looking for anything. In fact, they are probably the ones who are eating what fell from the rich man's table. The dogs are getting to eat what Lazarus was hoping for. And there's a sense that this adds to Lazarus' shame because wild dogs are, are licking him. But actually, there's another sense that these dogs are helping him because dogs lick in order to alleviate wounds. That's what they do to themselves, and that's what they're doing to Lazarus. So we are to get the understanding, we are to get the picture that neither the rich man or any of his friends helped Lazarus at all. The only one in the story who is caring for Lazarus are wild, scavenging dogs. The rich man and his, friend, and his friends paid Lazarus no mind. But even the dogs, even wild dogs could see that Lazarus needed compassion, that Lazarus needed help, that Lazarus was somebody worthy of paying attention to. One day, we don't know how long it passes, Lazarus dies. Very sad death. No funeral. No one to memorialize him. No friends come. 
No one who cared that Lazarus was gone. He passed from this life to the next, and no one seemed to notice. But then something absolutely amazing happens. It says angels, those glorious servants of God, they come and they carry Lazarus to Abraham's side. And now this was the Jewish way of saying Lazarus was carried right to heaven. He was in paradise where, of course, the Jewish father, the patriarch Abraham would be. So Lazarus, he's in the realm of the dead, but he's on the paradise side where the righteous dead would go to await the final judgment. Lazarus' misery, his torment is over, and now he can feast in the banquet of, the, of, of heaven and he can eat to his delight. Now the rich man, what happens to him? He also dies and he is buried. It says he's buried. So he gets a proper burial, probably with lots of fanfare and celebration, probably the fanciest coffin and nicest tombstone money can buy, and he probably gets an obituary in the Jerusalem Tribune, mourning his death. But all of a sudden, in an instant, in the blink of an eye, his fortunes are totally reversed. He dies, and he wakes up in Hades. This is the place in the Jewish mind of, of torment, where those who are wicked go after they die. And so he wakes up and finds himself in Hades. And he looks up far away and he sees Abraham. And to, maybe to his shock, he sees Lazarus right by Abraham's side. That would have been the place of honor at a banquet. Remember, Jesus said, be careful where you sit. Someone might put you in the place of honor instead later. So Lazarus is in the place of honor. At verse 24, he, he, he realizes where he is. So he calls up to Father Abraham and he says, have pity on me and send Lazarus. Just to, just to the tip of his finger in water so he can cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Notice that he calls Abraham his father. This is a Jewish man. This is a Jewish man. And the Jews at the time, they thought that simply being a Jew, simply being a descendant of Abraham, guaranteed one's status, one's salvation with God. So the irony, the irony here is a child of Abraham is in Hades. A child of Abraham is facing judgment. And then he says to him, have pity on me and send Lazarus. Can you believe the nerve of this guy? The nerve! First of all, never once did he lift a finger to help Lazarus when he was in need. But notice, he obviously knows who Lazarus is. He can look at Lazarus, pick him out, and say his name. He knew who Lazarus was. He passed him every day as he went to his house and never helped him one time, and now he has the audacity to ask for mercy from Lazarus. Second of all, he assumes that Lazarus is of such a lower class of people that he should still be serving the rich guy in the afterlife, even though he's in Hades and Lazarus is in, is in heaven. No, the rich man, he should be apologizing, right? He should be repenting. I can't believe I'm here, but he just wants Lazarus to serve him. He does not yet have a change of heart. You see, Lazarus... He just wanted a crumb. He just wanted some leftovers from this man's table. And now, notice the rich man. He just wants a little water on his tongue. A little relief from the fires of judgment. But the rich man is going to receive the exact amount of compassion and mercy that he showed Lazarus. He will receive none. So Abraham replies in verse 25. Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Your fortunes have been reversed. 
Lazarus has received comfort and you have received agonizing judgment. Verse 26, he continues, Besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. The judgment that each has received is final. See, in life, the rich man had a gate that he could have crossed back and forth at any time. He could have helped Lazarus any time that he wanted to. He could have crossed over. But in judgment, the gate can no longer be crossed. So verse 27, he starts to realize the predicament he is in. And he says, he answers, Then I beg you, Father, Abraham, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. He begs Abraham to have Lazarus warn his five brothers. Apparently, this lavish, sinful lifestyle is a family trait. It's a family characteristic. Friends, isn't it true that we often just simply adopt the lifestyle of our families without thinking very much? We kind of just adopt. There's exceptions to this, but in general, we kind of just live up to the lifestyle and luxury that our families taught us, the habits of generosity that our families passed on to us. And more than that, we often just adopt what the culture is doing as well. We don't think about what we're adopting. And that means these five brothers, the rich man knows that unless they change, unless they change their lifestyle, they're going to go to Hades too. Because they live just as lavishly and selfishly as the rich man. So he says, I beg you, send Lazarus to go warn them. But Abraham replies, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. In other words, the Bible's enough. The scriptures are enough. God has given them enough information about caring for the poor, about the, the, the dangers of judgment, that they shouldn't need any special treatment. God has revealed himself and what he wants from his people. But, but the rich man is persistent. He says, no, Father Abraham, he said, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. And Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. And that's kind of a little hint, hint from Jesus here, that people may not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead, right? But friends, the teaching is this. Those who continually reject the clear teachings of Scripture, what they're doing is they are hardening their hearts towards God. They're hardening their hearts towards others to the point where even if they saw someone come back from the dead, they would not be convinced. And wasn't that true in Jesus' day? People saw Jesus crucified, they saw him alive again, and they were not convinced because they had hardened their hearts to what God was doing in and through Jesus. They could not be convinced because they had been hardening their hearts. The rich man, he should have warned his family in life, but now it's too late. As Craig Blomberg says, this is a theme of this parable. The rich man, he pays attention to Lazarus too late. He sees the unbridgeable chasm too late. He worries about his brothers too late. And he heeds the law and the prophets too late. What a sobering end to the story. But the grace of this story is to wake you up to give you a second chance. It's to wake you up so that you have a second chance at getting this right. In the story of Christmas Carol, Scrooge, he wakes up the next day after seeing his future. His whole life changes. He sees the immense error of his ways. He repents and he turns his life around. He is completely transformed from a greedy miser to a joyous giver. You see, Charles Dickens, he wanted his readers to have their own Scrooge moment. 
to be totally transformed. And it wasn't too late for Scrooge. And I believe the same is true for Jesus and this story. The rich man is not given a name. Lazarus has a name, but the rich man is not given a name. I wonder why. Perhaps it's so that you put your own name into the story. You are the rich man. You are the rich woman. And Lazarus, the needs of the poor are right at your gate. There are opportunities all around us. And the Lord is watching. And if you're hearing this sermon, it is not too late. If you're hearing this parable, it is not too late for you. Right now, at any time you want, you can cross the gate. You can help the poor. You can warn your brothers and sisters. You can change. You can have your own Scrooge moment and be totally transformed. And Jesus' hope is that you would open your eyes to see the error of your ways and be completely transformed, to be born again, to have a brand new start. Even if you're an old person, like Scrooge was, it's never too late. It's never too late in this life. Friends, people of the good news must be good news to the poor. I just want to give you a few pastoral thoughts about how this can apply to us. How can we live differently in light of this story? Number one, friends, loving God, it means loving the poor. Loving God means loving the poor. This, this story, it, it doesn't teach that we can earn our way to heaven by caring for the poor. And nor does it mean that if you're poor, you simply go to heaven. If you're rich, you simply will go to hell. It's not teaching any of those things. No, the point of this parable is to show us that a true relationship with God will result in caring for the poor. And one that does not involve caring for the poor will result in judgment. Look what the Apostle John, he says this, 1 John 3.16. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. You see, our response to the poor among us is like holding up a mirror and seeing what's inside, seeing what it shows us. And if you hold up that mirror and you don't have care or compassion in your heart to those who don't have enough, then it shows that we don't have the heart of God. Because God's heart is for the poor. Jesus was good news to the poor. His heart burns for the poor of this world. And if, that, if you feel like that is describing you in some way, then this is your time for a Scrooge moment. This is your time to repent of the grip that money and possessions have had on your heart before it's too late. Live your life in such a way that the poor of this world will give thanks to God for you, that you were here because you made a difference. So we need loving God. Know that it means loving the poor. Number two, we need to exchange earthly wealth for heavenly wealth. Exchange your earthly wealth for heavenly wealth. When the Apostle Paul was giving instructions to his mentee, Timothy, he said this, Command those who are rich in the present world, notice it's the present world, not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way they will what? They will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. Friend, friends, it's not a sin to be rich but it is a potential liability. 
It's a potential liability. And we will be judged in how we use this powerful resource that God has entrusted us with. And God graciously gives us the opportunity to use it to help others so that we can lay up treasure for ourselves in the age to come. So while you have the chance, exchange earthly wealth for heavenly wealth, and you won't be disappointed. Finally, last thought I would encourage us to do is to pursue simplicity and contentment. Pursue simplicity and contentment. In the same chapter from 1 Timothy, Paul says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. You see, the judgment the rich man in the story received is in part due to the disparity, the juxtaposition of the lifestyles of, of one is so lavish and one is so poor, and he did nothing about it. And Paul reminds us, we brought nothing in, we take nothing out, and if we have food and clothes, we will be content with that. Well, then immediately we ask, well, what about stuff beyond food and clothing? Well, I don't think this is totally literal, but it's between you and the Lord. We know that the early Christians had homes, they met in homes, and I think there are legitimate expenses that we can purchase, but it's a great discussion that we can keep having. This should never be out of your, out of your mind, how to discern spending your resources in light of the stewardship we've been entrusted with. So keep the conversation going with your spouse, with your family, with your friends, with your small group, with your church. Gosh, how can I steward this well for the sake of God's glory? But you know what almost always happens? I, I always hear this whenever I teach or preach about money. Uh, basically, people start to ask the question, well, well, how much can I spend on myself? In some way, this question almost always comes up. And it, I really compare it to my time in youth ministry. My background is a youth pastor. And if you, whenever you talked about lust and dating, the question would always, almost always come up in some form. Well, pastor, how far is too far? How far, how far can I go until I'm in trouble? Until I'm, until I'm in sin? And I said, no, 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 you're missing the point. The point is to run as far as you can away from that so that you're not putting yourself in temptation and trouble. You're missing it entirely. And the same is true with this conversation. People often miss the point. The point is not how much can I spend on myself. The point is to run as far away from greed and materialism as you can. It's not even put yourself in danger of being close to that. It's to say, no, Lord, how much can I give? You own it all, God. You own it all. Help me to steward it well for your glory, not for mine. Help me to run away from the greed and lavish lifestyle of this world. Help me to pursue simplicity and contentment with food and clothing. With food and clothing, I can be content with that. So keep the conversation going and run to generosity. Run to the poor. Run to help others. That is the call of Christ in his kingdom. So friends, when we do that, if we would live in such a way that we would be transformed like Scrooge was, that we would be transformed into joyous, generous givers everywhere we go, gosh, wouldn't Christians be good news to the poor of the world? Wouldn't we be good news to the poor if every Christian lived like that? Friends, people of the good news must be good news to the poor. Amen? I want to give you a time because the point of this sermon, the point of this story, the point of this parable is to get you to reflect on your own life. Where are you at? Because if the choir would come up, they're going to sing a song. And during this time, reflect.